film loving world. My name is John Barber, and I'm your host for Fixed in Post, the Rabbit Room podcast about all things movies. Not only do we talk about the movies we love, but we also discuss how we'd fix their problems if someone gave us the editing suite for a few hours. 2019 has been a great year for movies, and in this special episode of Fixed in Post, we cover our top 10 movies of the year. Special thanks go out to Andrew Osinga for our theme music. Let's get to it. Welcome to Fix and Post. This is the Rabbit Room podcast about all things movies, and this is a podcast we love to do every single year. It's the one where Pete and I get together and do our favorite films of the year. So we're each going to do a top 10 of 2019. With me, as always, is the executive director of the Rabbit Room, Pete Peterson. Say hi, Pete. Hey, folks. It's been a good year for movies. This is going to be fun. Yeah, and in fact, that's kind of how I wanted to start off today, Pete, was talking about how for me, anyway, 2019 was a phenomenal year for films. What do you think? Yeah, totally. And I'm frustrated. Like I'm, I'm, I'm always frustrated by how few films I feel like I get to see. And this year was an exacerbation of that because I felt like I was missing things every time I turned around. So I saw a lot of movies this year, but there are some things that I missed that probably would have ended up on this list. Yeah, I, I saw a lot. I mean, if you were to look on my letterboxed list, I saw 56, I believe, 2019 releases. And uh, I was looking back at my 2017, 2018 lists and thinking that those lists don't hold a candle to this year. In fact, you could take my top, I don't know, 15 or 20 from this year, and they would easily be yeah. top fives from the last few years. Yeah, I'm the same way. And like even my the top like seven or eight that I landed on, I feel like depending on my mood, I could rearrange any of them. And uh, that's how good that the cream of the crop was this year. Yeah, in fact, I saw just in the last few days some movies that won't make my list this year, um, but in past years might have, like 1917 that I just saw a couple of days ago in the theater. I'm really surprised to hear that's not on your list. It's not even close. I think... I've got it somewhere in the middle, somewhere around 30. Huh. So, wow. I, but I'm guessing by your response that we might hear some more about that movie here in a you'll little he, while. You'll hear a little bit about it. I definitely didn't see 30 movies that were better. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's kind of it's killing me a little bit that I don't get to talk about some of these other really great films. Um, movies like The Lighthouse or Waves or Tigers Are Not Afraid, or Midsummer movies that I really liked a lot that won't end up at the end of this thing. I didn't see any of those, and those are some of the ones that I regret. Because <laughs> a couple of those you just mentioned, I wonder if would if they would be on my list. Uh, yeah, and I'm excited really to talk about the ones that are at the top of my list. But I'm curious, before we get into it, Pete, um, what... What are some of the criteria that get a movie on your top 10 list? Man, that's such a good question. Um, it's a complicated answer because I feel like the way that I make these lists, it ends up being a, a combination of what I think of are the best from a craftsmanship standpoint movies and the best from a, these are my favorite to watch movies. So it's, you know, there's some fluidity to, you know, how I weight those things. Uh, but ultimately, I think it comes down to, you know, the films that I walked out of the theater just being, feeling completely, gosh, wow, I have to tell everybody about this. 
everybody needs to see this. I want to see it again immediately. Like those are the kind of things that landed in my top 10. And so that, that means that there are movies that I've seen that are maybe wonderfully crafted that I just don't ever need to see again, you know? Uh, and so while I can admit that it's a great movie, it's not one that moved me emotionally in a, a, in a, in a big way. So that's not something I'm going to put in my top 10. Whereas there are other films what, that are, you know, clearly from a craftsman cinematic standpoint uh, are not the pinnacle of cinema. But uh, I so loved the experience of watching them and watching them again and talking about them with other people that they are going to be part of my filmic memory and therefore they make the list. So that's kind of where I'm coming from. Yeah, and actually the the difference between best and favorite is really interesting because like you said, there are movies that for me, a movie like Marriage Story, which I think is brilliantly scripted, brilliantly acted. Um, The cinematography is beautiful. All of the things work and I kind of hated it. Yeah. And I I hope I never see it again because uh, for a lot of reasons, but um, I, I can't deny the effectiveness of it and I can't deny the quality of it, uh, but it's not one that I'm going to run around recommending. Right. And, and on the other side of that is a movie that I really loved. So uh, I imagine we'll hear maybe from a different perspective about this movie later, but I loved the new Star Wars does it have a lot of problems? Yes, it's got a whole lot of problems. I think it actually but, has all the problems. <laughs> but when I left the theater, <laughs> I walked out of the theater. We went across the parking lot to Target, and the first place I went was to the Star Wars toys. <laughs> oh my gosh! Like I don't want to. I don't want to get into a Star Wars discussion. No, 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 no. Say no, no. that upon walking out, like I was, like kind of baffled and enraged, and my wife. Um, I think almost was in tears. She was so disappointed in it. That's funny because all five of us loved it, but whatever, that's my point. Like at the same time, I acknowledge it. Like you said, it's got all of the problems and I get it. Um, So it's funny how something can be something we love, but is not going to come anywhere near a year end best of list because we acknowledge all of the things that are wrong with it. Okay. So this is interesting. I've thought a little bit about this and, and this isn't, you know, my final thoughts on the matter or anything, but sure. a, a great illustration of this in some ways is the Star Wars. So, okay, so the Star Wars prequels, something like, um, you know, The Revenge of the Sith, which is a terrible yeah. movie, and uh, The Rise of Skywalker, which I would argue is yeah. also a terrible movie uh, from a craftsman standpoint. So, I think there's a sense in which, uh, much like we're talking about craftsmanship versus enjoyment, uh, where I, the Something like The Revenge of the Sith, I think, is a better movie, nuts and bolts-wise, than uh, Rise of Skywalker. However, it's not—it's so unenjoyable an experience that I wouldn't wish it on anybody, the, 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 the prequel, <laughs> that is. Whereas Rise of Skywalker is broken in so many storytelling ways that you could write a book on it. Uh, in ways that the the rise of this or the revenge of the Sith is not, and yet Rise of Skywalker is full of enjoyable things that will let you enjoy it anyway. Yeah, does yeah, that make I'm sense? I'm with you on that totally. I yeah, mean, which is really interesting to me. If if I were making a list of Star Wars movies in order, for example, I might put Revenge of the Sith higher than Rise of Skywalker. But I also might do it the other way around. It just depends on the criteria yeah. that I'm feeling at that particular moment. I totally get it. 
Yeah. It's interesting that if you look at the Rotten Tomatoes scores, um, Rise of Skywalker is only rated better than The Phantom Menace. Oh, that's interesting. Which is really interesting. And honestly, I think is about where I would put it. (laughs) Yeah, that makes sense. But anyway, let's get off that. I don't want to cover Star Wars. Let's talk about good movies. we don't need to do that. Yeah. Yeah. So (laughs) last dig. I'm sorry. Okay. Before we get into our list, Pete, I got a question for you. And that is what was uh, maybe a a surprise you had in film this year, something you didn't expect coming. Okay. Well, I actually wrote down three that, that were just kind of out of left field. Didn't know these movies were coming really. And even having seen the trailers initially, I thought that movie is going to be terrible. And then I went to see it and was like, that was wonderful. Uh, And so the first one I'll mention is Shazam. Like, yes. I, I love comic book films, and when I saw the trailer for Shazam, it just looked like they had thrown everything about that character under the bus, and it was going to be a horrifying movie. And so I begrudgingly went to see it based <laughs> on some good word, word of mouth, and it was delightful. It was absolutely yep. delightful, and I would watch it again anytime. So Big fan of it. Me definitely too. not my favorite movie of the year by any stretch, but an absolutely delightful film. Yeah, and if I can if I can just put in a quick plug for Shazam because I loved it too. When was the last time you saw a film that was so aggressively pro family, even yeah. to the point of like this may seem little, but like praying over their meals together, sitting yeah. around the table. I loved it. I loved, I loved it. it. Yeah. And man, that yeah. moment. I'm not going to spoil anything, but that moment yeah. that happens in the final act mm-hmm. of the film was mm-hmm. so moving. <laughs> mm-hmm. yep. Like I just you. was like. <gasps> Are they doing what I think they're doing? And it's just, oh, it was so good. So it was my favorite, my my favorite comic book movie of the year. Better than Endgame, better than Captain Marvel. It was my favorite. Wow. Yeah. So what about you? Uh, So the the first one I want to talk about, and I I won't spend a lot of time on this, but um, I didn't see it till a few weeks ago. But it's a little film called The Body Remembers When the World Broke Open. And I've not uh, heard of that. Yeah, you can find it on Netflix. It's a Canadian film by Kathleen Hepburn and L. Mijah Tailfeathers, whose name I probably just butchered, and I apologize. But this is the story of two women who have a chance encounter at a bus stop. And uh, one woman sees a young indigenous woman barefoot, um, and she's pregnant, and she's crying because she's uh, escaping from her abusive boyfriend. And the movie is about the instant relationship that happens between the two of them as they try to figure out what to do now. And it's quiet and it's lots of conversation and it's beautiful. And I highly, highly, highly recommend it. Can you say the name one more time? The name of the movie is the body remembers when the world broke open and it's on Netflix. It's on Netflix. All right. I'm going to check it out. Yep. What's your next one there? Big surprise. Uh, I've got two others. Um, This one is, well, I'll do this one first. Um, it just came out in December. It was one of these things that Netflix just drops on everybody without a warning. Mm-hmm. And yep. uh, it was called Klaus. And it's a uh, Santa Claus kind of animated story. And the uh, art style really reminds me a lot of what the Wingfeather saga uh, uh, movie is looking like. It was just kind of unexpectedly delightful and it's just remarkable, I think, that in this day and age, somebody found a way to tell a new story about Santa Claus and thoroughly enjoyed it. Great. I'll, I'll throw out one more. Um, it's a, a Mexican film called Tigers Are Not Afraid, and it's kind of a light horror film um, directed and written by a woman named Isa Lopez, and it's a story of a young girl who's 
community is being rocked by violence. Uh, the drug cartels are killing everybody, basically. And she is given three wishes. And the movie is a little bit of a fairy tale, but in the scary way. And like in most fairy tales, your wishes don't come true in the way that you think they're going to. Oh, this sounds and, great. Um, it's super compelling. It's um, got some great child actors in it. I highly recommend it. Uh, obviously, it's in Spanish. And you can find it streaming somewhere. I don't know off the top of my head. Yeah, that sounds fantastic. I need to yeah, check it really out. Yeah, it's very yeah. good. So my third one, and this is, I mean, it's just kind of a throwaway thing. I put it in my surprises because in, I just never would have expected this to be any, any good or, or I wouldn't have expected me to enjoy it to the level that I did. Having said that, it's not a great movie at all. It's got all sorts of problems. <laughs> but what it does have is Arnold Schwarzenegger being awesome. <laughs> and it's the new Terminator movie. Okay, uh, I haven't seen it. Like I just uh, Linda, what's her name? Linda Hamilton is back, Linda and she's Hamilton. kind of ridiculous. Um, yeah. But she's also just like a wonderful badass old woman toting guns. But Arnie is back, and he's so funny, and he so just nails what they're trying to do. That I, you know, the movie is off the off the rails in a whole lot of other ways. That's great. But it's worth it just to go see Arnold do his thing again. Okay, I, I haven't seen it. It was one of those that like I'd love to get to it if I got the chance, and I never did. I'll give you a third one as well, and it's also on Netflix. It's called Atlantics, and it's a Senegalese film about this seaside town in which all of the young men uh, go out to sea to try to find work, to try to they go to Spain to try to find work, and they all disappear, and the women are left alone uh, to fend for themselves. And the movie is about uh, there, there's a real theme of economic disparity, which is a thing you'll see in all the movies this year. But um, it's got a sci-fi sort of horror turn that is something I've never seen before in a film, and it's great. Uh, so I won't spend any time on it because I don't want to ruin any surprises. It's called Atlantics. Uh, highly recommended. Okay, well, at this point, let's get into our top ten uh, movies of the year and the way we do this every year we do it the same way which is we'll each kind of go rapid fire through our number 10 through number six movies and then after that we'll trade off on our top fives so pete why don't you kick us off with your 10 through six so i feel like we should at least refer to my list as the correct list so that it can be distinct from yours, which is bound to be wrong in many ways. <laughs> At least I saw movies this year, Pete. <laughs> so having said that, uh, my number 10 was the only movie this year that uh, Jonathan Rogers wrote, which is not true, <laughs> but it should have been true. And it's Pe Peanut Butter Falcon, which yes. starred Shia LaBeouf, who is somebody that I usually cannot stand. Um but it's just a it's a weird little movie in Florida and mm -hmm. South Carolina uh, about a relationship between a redneck and a and a and a man with Down syndrome, and I it's a swamp odyssey, and uh, it's just it felt felt like a combination of Jonathan Rogers and Mark Twain, and loved loved it. Now there's some story problems in the third act that I won't get yep. into. But none of that gets in the way of how delightful the film was. And it was a real surprise and can't recommend it highly enough. So that's Pe Peanut Butter Falcon. Yeah, cinematography is beautiful in it as well. Yeah, great. And Shia LaBeouf actually does a remarkable job. Like, I had to give him props that I completely enjoyed yep. his performance. Uh, so totally. that was my number 10. Number 9 is Avengers Endgame. Cool. Um, like, you know, this is not, you know, the pinnacle of uh, the art of cinema, 
it kind of like you know I I understand where Martin Scorsese is coming from when he says that superheroes films are not cinema. I also disagree with him. Uh, but what Endgame is, it's it's a magnificent uh, finale to a remarkable body of work that was mostly really good storytelling. And uh, so yeah, we saw it a couple times in the theater. I've seen it a couple times since, and it never fails to move me. I just it's a miraculous feat of. Uh, of filmmaking and storytelling that they're able to weave that many things together and have it work. And it's movies like this that make me want to say to JJ Abrams, like, look, it can be done, (laughs) Uh, you know, but I loved it. So that was my number nine. Number eight is us, uh, which is a horror movie uh, by Jordan Peele that came out earlier this year, which is kind of about uh, a whole bunch of things that are going on in America right now. It wasn't a perfect movie. I didn't think it was quite as good as Get Out, but uh, it was fantastic. If you're the kind of person that doesn't that likes uh, to think through your horror films, this is definitely the kind of movie you're going to like. Uh, and then on top of that is my first of two television series that I've put in to this list. And my defense of that is that, hey, you know what? <laughs> Sometimes television is cinema too, and especially when it's this good. And uh, my pick here is the third season of The Crown, which uh, I was really skeptical going into it that the new cast was going to be able to pick up where the old ones left off because I loved them so much. Um, But the good news is they did. And by the end of the season, I was bought into every one of them. And the writers have not lost any ground. Like it is just a super, super well-written show full of great, great scenes, really complicated characters. And I just can't recommend it highly enough. So that's The Crown season three. And then rounding out my bottom five is a film that I just saw, and that's 1917. Uh, I'm a little conflicted about it. Like, uh, I think you could criticize the film for being kind of a one-trick pony, because for those of you who don't know, it's essentially a single shot for the whole film. Like one shot kind of flows in and out, and you see everything from the same perspective. And, you know, you see where it's stitched together here and there. But that's the central conceit of the film. And I think that's a strength and a weakness of it. From a cinematic standpoint, it's remarkable to watch. Uh, you wonder how in the world are they they tracking these shots, and who how did how many times do they have to walk through this scene before they get it just right? Which makes it yeah. you know something to really geek out about. But on the other hand, uh, you know you find yourself paying so much attention to that sometimes that uh, I feel like it's a case where if you're drawn to the technical thing that's going on rather than completely drawn to the story then there's a slight imbalance there so that's my criticism of it on the other hand what i loved about it is that it's set in the great war world war one and yet it's a very small story um it doesn't uh, i expected it to try to go really big and really dramatic and really tug on the heartstrings and try to get across the whole sweep of the war and i was glad that it didn't do that it just follows these two guys and yes, you get those heartstrings tugged on. You get the sense of the scope of what's going on, but it never goes like full Steven Spielberg on you. Um, it keeps the focus small enough that it ends up being a remarkably small film. And anyway, so I just loved it. It's not the kind of thing that uh, you're likely to see ever again in your life, probably, because it's it's a, it's filmmaking on a technical level that few people will ever aspire to. Um, but the performances are fantastic, and everybody should go see it. And that is, I think, one, two, three, four, five. That's the end of my top bottom. That's that's the end of my short list. Bottom of my top ten. 
That's a good list. I think I saw, except for The Crown, I think I saw all of those. I, unlike Pete, don't cheat by putting television on our movies list, but that's okay. Because I am going to cheat. Oh my gosh, hold on. I just realized, I'm looking at my list right now, and I just realized that I mistakenly put 11 films in my top 10. So that's actually not... (laughs) So 1917 is actually number seven, not number six. Number six. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm just a terrible, (laughs) terrible list maker, apparently. This is why I should number things. Uh, (laughs) So that makes Plus one for Letterboxd here. One more time. Letterboxd. Plug for Letterboxd. Uh, So anyway, I guess my real number six is The Irishman by Martin Scorsese, which, um, man, I struggle with wanting to say that this is my favorite Scorsese film. Um, in a lot of ways it is, I think, man, he's just, if you, if you look at this movie, which is about gangsters and the mob, and then you look at something like Goodfellas, I think it's really apparent how much Scorsese has grown as a storyteller and as a human being, even, uh, in these intervening like 30 years, uh, the Irishman is, is, uh, got a real moral center to it that I really appreciate and where it lands on things is just beautiful. And I think uh, kind of a revelation of where Martin Scorsese must be in his faith here at the end of his life. Um, It's just a wonderful movie. It's three hours long. And I thought, man, that's a really long movie. But when it was over, I thought I wouldn't cut a minute of it. It all goes together and stitched together so wonderfully. And the performances by De Niro and Joe Pesci in particular are amazing. They're just some of the best work they've ever done. Al Pacino, I just think he's doing his Al Pacino thing, and I wish he'd calm down. But but the movie itself is wonderful. Um, A lot of people are probably going to watch it and just think it's rambling and slow and maybe a little bit boring. And I'm telling you, you need to pay attention. It's very intentional. It's very well put together. And when you find out where it's going at the end, uh, I just think it's beautiful. So, and, and when I say that it's not my favorite Scorsese film, it's only because I love silence so much. Um, and so those two are in kind of a tug of war, in my opinion, for his best film. Um, and that is my, uh, that's the first part of my top 10 list. Yeah. Well, uh, spoiler alert here. You might, you might hear a little bit more about the Irishman here in a few minutes. Um, but for my, 10 through six, it goes like this at number 10. Um, and I, the, the, let me say real quick that there's a whole lot of movies that are just outside this list that really easily could have been inside it. A movie like yep. transit or the lighthouse or waves or dark waters. I like there, there's so many portrait of lady on fire that, that very easily could have been in here, but I shuffled this thing a whole bunch of times and this was kind of the best I could do. So, um, at number 10, I've got James Gray's Ad Astra, uh, which is a space film starring Brad Pitt. And it is a movie about fathers and sons. And it's a movie about uh, being on a quest for things. And it's quiet. It's it's the anti-modern space film. It's quiet. It's uh, got majesty built into its quietness. And I liked it a whole lot. You will hear more about that one. I thought I might. Next up, uh, I've got a movie that, again, not a lot of people have seen, and it's a shame because I really dug it a whole lot. And it's Jennifer Kent's uh, film, The Nightingale. And The Nightingale it takes place in 1825 in Australia, and it's about a, a young woman who's an ex-convict whose uh, husband and small child are killed by a couple of British officers. And the film is... 
her, Claire, uh, befriending a young Aboriginal man and the two of them tracking the British officers that have wrecked her family. And um, it's a fantastic meditation on violence as uh, a panacea. Can you heal yourself through violence? That's what the movie is about. And um, Oh, man, that sounds right up my alley. It really is. I believe it's streaming on Hulu. Um, watch that one. It's great. If, if you're not familiar with Jennifer Kent, this is her second uh, major film. The first one was The Babadook, which is another great movie. I so did not like The Babadook. Oh, you're the only human being that I've spoken to that didn't like it. It's, it's yeah. great. I, to be fair, I should go back and finish it. Like I, I, I disliked <laughs> it enough halfway through that I just went and did something else. Maybe, Gosh, I maybe, my, maybe I was in a bad mood that night. Yeah. Um, so here's the one that I'm going to get. I'm going to get some uh, crud from you for. Here it comes because it's ranked so low on my list, um, and it's number. What am I on? Number eight, and it's Greta Gerwig's Little Women. What? Um, what? Yeah, there it is. There it is. And again, it's just a great year. And yeah. I saw, I just saw a bunch of movies I liked more. And this is one of those movies that kind of st- started higher on the list and just dropped a few places down. And it's not because I like it less. It's just because I like some of these other ones more. Um, I imagine I'll be yeah. hearing about this in a minute from you, and I'll let you do most of the talking about it. Let me say it's charming, and it's incisive, and the performances are fantastic, and Saoirse Ronan and Florence Pugh are magnificent. Like I like literally almost everything about it. There are just a few films I liked more, but highly, highly, highly recommended. Go see it. Go see it on the big screen. All that stuff. Take your whole family. It's great. Yeah. At number, uh, number seven uh, is Knives Out, Ryan Johnson's Knives Out which um, maybe was the most fun I had at a movie theater this year. Amen. Um, yeah, it, it's uh, the, the writing is so incisive. And so he manages to take this uh, Agatha Christie-style murder mystery and make it a movie that's very clearly about our current political climate. And somehow you don't care that it's overtly political. I don't um, think that's fair. I don't know how overt that is. I mean, it's there. But I think what's great about it is it's it's there it's in the background enough that it's not overt. Yeah, see, I I disagree, and I think that's one of the I, I say that to commend the movie, not not to diss it, because uh, yeah. you, you get a, a great scene with the family sitting around, literally talking about things that are happening yeah. with the current administration. Like he he kind of smacks you across the face with it. But this is another one of those movies this year that really centers on this theme of economic inequality. Yeah. And the haves yeah. versus the have-nots, which you know is an age-old topic to cover in films. But this year, uh, and it's again because of the the world we're living in right now, it's really where a lot of these movies end up. You'll be even hearing about a couple more that that live in that yeah. world. I've got a few other thoughts, but I'll I'll save them for my turn. Yeah. Yep. I w- I don't want to cover it all. And so the last one in this part for me, and this is one that. I had higher, and I really wish I could spend a whole lot of time talking about. Um, it's a movie that I walked out of the theater in tears, and I feel like nobody saw it, uh, and which is a real shame to me. Um, and it's Doctor Sleep. So oh yeah, sequel, you walked yeah, out of that in the tears. Um, I was so affected by a the relationship between the father and son, like that dynamic in Doctor Sleep. Uh, kind of turned me into a blubbering mess. There's one scene in particular, and I don't want to 
get into the spoilers of it, uh, that turned me into a blubbering mess. We all know that we all take our own experiences into any work of art, and this sure. is a perfect example of that for me. Huh. Uh, super effective, super like this business uh, in Doctor Sleep of how do our past experiences inform what we're going through now? Do we shut them away? Do we close them off? Or do we allow them to help us fight through what we're dealing with now? Like, uh, I think it's fantastic. I'm a huge, huge fan of it. It's one of those that I want. I want the collector's edition Blu-ray to sit on my shelf for as long as I live. Yeah, can you give a little context for what it is? Because I had never. I think it's a it's a oh, Stephen sure. King book, right? Yeah. So so Doctor Sleep is the sequel to The Shining, and it takes. That place seems like such from- a bad idea. If you're well, if you're familiar with The Shining at all, you, you, whether you know the Stephen King novel or the film, uh, you may be more familiar with the film, which is Jack Nicholson and uh, taking place in the Overlook Hotel in the winter time, and all of these sort of ghosts that haunt this man and basically destroy him. I will Doctor forever Sleep. argue that that is a terrible movie. <laughs> Stephen King would agree with you. Um, so Doctor Sleep, what what it's able to do is it takes the young boy Danny Torrance. And it, it's also based on a Stephen King novel. And he's grown up now, played by Ewan McGregor in the film. And um, he still has his ability. He still has The Shining. And it turns out so do a few other people. And these people have sort of have the ability to find each other. And um, the movie straddles the balance of, I think, appeasing the film lovers and the novel lovers. Like, it scratches both itches. I love them both. Huh. It scratches both itches really, really well for me. I need to see it again, honestly. It just I'm just looking at the IMDb page right now as we're talking, going, gosh, I want to see it again. Yeah, I need to see that one. That was barely on my radar when it came out. Um, and I normally go out of my way to see the Stephen King stuff yep. just because I'm an age-old Stephen King fan, so all of that stuff kind of lights me up. But, uh, yeah, I missed that. Me too. And in fact, I think a little bit later we'll be hearing a little bit about another Stephen King movie from this year. I think we um, will. Yeah, maybe not in the best possible way. But before we get to our top fives, I wanted to ask you another question, Pete. What was your favorite single moment of the year? And maybe it's a, a scene or a, a music sting or something like that. Just a moment that really affected you. Man, that's a hard one. Like, I feel like, do I have to say just one? You can give me a couple, sure. I mean, I think... You cheat every other way. I think there are two. (laughs) I think there are two for me. I think there's two. Maybe three. (laughs) One of them is uh, just the moment, the eucatastrophe moment in Avengers Endgame. Like, when that happens, like, what's so miraculous about that is that we all know it's coming. It's not a surprise. Like, you see it coming a mile away. And yet, somehow, they managed to edit that stuff together in a way that when it finally happened, it just knocked me upside the head and I started crying. And I will never get tired of watching that moment of that movie. It's so great. Um, You know, it's just just as good as some of the moments in in the Lord of the Rings trilogies. But then beyond that, and that one's kind of purely just an emotional response thing. But beyond that, I think the, uh, the ending of The Irishman, was a revelation and then the the ending of terrence malick's a hidden life and i'll talk more about that why later but there's a specific theological uh point that that movie makes that i so often am frustrated that movies don't make 
that when it happened in this film, I just was so absolutely happy. I knew I had found the movie that I I loved. So I'll talk more about that later. Great. Um, mine, it's interesting because this question came out of watching a movie and thinking, oh my gosh, that's the best moment of the year for me. And it was when I saw, I, I didn't see it till a few weeks ago, but Peter Jackson's They Shall Not Grow Old, mm. which uh, documentary, yeah, uh, about uh, the soldiers in World War One, and actually pairs really nicely with 1917. And um, the, the moment for me that I could feel the 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 emotion. I watched it sitting on my, you know, in, in my chair with my laptop on my lap. But still, I could feel the the entire room change that I was in. And it was when near the beginning, when the footage goes from black and white. To yes, black. yes, so great. Yeah, so it's, great. It's like I have. I mean, I've been watching war movies and I've been watching war documentaries my whole life, and I have never seen this before. All of well, a sudden, I was there. But hold on, correct me if I'm wrong. It doesn't just go from color to black and white. The whole aspect of the film changes. Sure. It goes yeah, from yeah, like yeah, yeah. like four three, and it opens up to sixteen by nine. Totally. So it's like yeah. all of a sudden you are sucked into the world, and it's yes. a really powerful moment. It's a and it, and it it's the the way it happens is it's not there's not like a lot of fanfare that leads up to it. It's just in in the middle of these scenes, um, scenes you know you've kind of seen before black and white stock footage from from you know the war and soldiers and all those things, and all of a sudden you're now inside it somehow. Which is a miracle of film. Yeah, I guess maybe in the way that you were talking about 1917, the technical marvel of that movie, right. which is kind of what hurt it in my book. I felt like I was playing a video game. Um, okay, that. Man, oh, hold on. Oh man, is 1970? <laughs> is 1917 going to show up again in our discussion? Not no. Okay, not for me either. Okay, because I wanted to mention this. Yeah. Um, I immediately recognized in that movie that this is what video games have been doing for years. Totally. Like this uh, first person, like where you're always locked into the same exact perspective. And as a storyteller, you're forced to reckon with the limits of that device and figure out how to tell a compelling story. And uh, now I've never seen anybody do it to this scale on film with cameras before, but it really made me appreciate in a whole new way what uh, the some of the uh, groundbreaking storytelling methods that have come out of video games in the last 20 years, like Half-Life or uh, The Last of Us. You know, some of these Mm -hmm. first person shooters do an amazing job of drawing you in and developing emotional connections and and big reveals as you come over the top of a hill and all that. Uh, And so some people might go to a film like 1917 and think this is revolutionary. Well, I got news for you. It's not. Like video game folks have been doing this for years. And if you've totally. ever wondered if video games are an art form, this is a great argument that I would put forward as to why, yes, they are an art form. They can be an amazing way to sell a story. And so it was interesting to me to sit there watching 1917 and instead of being like, oh, this is a revelation to go, oh, this is Half-Life, you know, yep. like and just then sit back and just really watch them enjoy what they're doing. Uh, yeah. All right. Uh, off my horse. Sorry. I, I just agree. To get that in there. With no, I'm with you. I'm with you on all of that. It's just it instead of like making me enjoy 1917 more, it made me want to go play video games. So, <laughs> like, I get it. I, I spent half the movie watching for the cuts, but maybe yeah. that's just me. Yeah. Same here. Um, <laughs> it was. It was. So it was hurt. distracting, but it was still yeah. amazing. Yeah. 
uh, totally like I want to see all the behind the scenes stuff. Like I, I nerd out on that stuff. So I, I really liked it a lot. Okay. Let's get to our top five. Shall we, you want to kick us off with number five? Okay. My number five is a movie that's already been mentioned. It's Ad Astra. Yeah. Um, so man, where to start? Um, I space was monkeys. so <laughs> space monkeys. Yeah. You can't go wrong with space monkeys. Actually, you could easily go wrong with space monkeys, totally, but this movie totally. doesn't. Um, and I was so wonderfully surprised by what a quiet film it was. Like the quiet yeah. is everywhere. The space for th- thought yep. and reflection is everywhere. It was just beautiful. And I think it's the best thing I've ever seen Brad Pitt do. Like I just thought his performance was remarkable. And, uh, and the, the relationship with him and his father, like all of just everything about the movie worked for me. If I have anything negative to say about it, it's that it also has a theological angle that I strongly disagree with. And uh, b- because the movie is so much about fathers and sons, and yeah. uh, it's kind of about Brad Pitt growing up and learning that you know he doesn't have to live in his father's shadow, and that you know that relationship doesn't mean anything or it doesn't mean things in the way that he thought it did. Um, they make some real strong um, allusions to that as a theological argument as well. Sure. So yeah. for where for how humanity just needs to get over this whole father God thing and go on and be itself. So I, I have strong disagreements with that point of view, but um, that doesn't bother me because uh, like I am more than happy to disagree with somebody who's making a beautiful argument. You know, and, and it's saying something beautiful, even if I come to a different conclusion. So it's not that I think, you know, you're going to go watch this movie and come out of an, an atheist. I think you could read it in a multitude of ways. Um, but, you know, there is this, you know, mild bit of, ah, man, I wish, I wish they'd come down on a different, different uh, side of that kind of art conversation. But having said that, it's just a beautiful film. And especially, I, I expect that it especially resonates with men who have had uh, complicated relationships with their fathers. That's totally. not to say that it can't work for everybody, but uh, in, in my context, like it just, uh, it really hit home. It felt, it felt totally real. Loved, just lo- I loved everything about it. And and it has moon pirates. I mean, come on, and a space monkey. So space monkey. Yeah, I think I've gushed enough. I don't, I don't really have anything else negative to say about it. I just, I can't wait to see it again. And I thought it was fantastic. And I really would like to see. I would be really happy if Brad Pitt got a an acting nomination for this, not his other big role this year. Yeah, I think you'll be disappointed in that. I think I will uh, when too. That, when that happens, <laughs> as much as I like Ad Astra, and believe me, I did. Although this might be a good time to point out that. Um, while he did have two good roles this year, I think by far the person that won the year, if we can say won the year, um, was Adam Driver in every movie that came out this year? Because I think he might have been. His 2019 uh, list of films, uh, just real quick, let me pull it up. But, Star but Wars, one of, of those, okay, go ahead. Star Wars, Marriage Which, Story, The Dead I Don't thought, Die. Okay, hold on. Let me stop you real quick. I thought my yeah. impression of, like, I love Adam Driver, but in this Star yeah. Wars movie, I felt like there were scenes where he was just embarrassed to be saying words. And I felt like it came through in his performance. So, like, he didn't know, what, why is this happening? I'm just saying whatever's on the page. I have no idea what to do with it. Yeah, but so, so my, my there's that. Po- point being... <laughs> Between that, Marriage Story, the great uh, zombie film, The Dead Don't Die, 
The Report, which is a really good movie uh, about politics that's streaming on Amazon Prime that you should watch. Like the the Man Who Killed Don Quixote, which I didn't like that much, but uh, okay, still. Now, it, Adam just Driver's let me pull you up short one more time because that movie, like that's that's a terrible <laughs> movie. There, it's irredeemably terrible. Um, I don't agree with that. It, well, you need to, <laughs> and then I could I could get into it in a million ways. It's just it doesn't work in any way, shape, or form. And part of my biggest beef with it is that it's got a great actor like Adam Driver in it, who is not being directed at all. Like he's totally adrift in this movie. Has like it's so clear that he doesn't know where he is in the story, doesn't know how he should be playing scenes, and none of this is Adam's fault. This is this is all directorial fault. And like I was embarrassed and during that whole movie, I was embarrassed for him. Um, because like I can't imagine how awful it must be to an actor to think, oh man, I have the opportunity to work with this great director and a story that's mythological, and then to get there and realize none of it works, and this is going to go out, and people are going to see it, and there's not a damn thing you can do about it. And I just I felt bad for everybody involved with that film. Sorry, what's, I'm done. That's it's fine. But what's interesting about the man who killed Don, who, the man who killed Don Quixote is it's a movie that's like. 25 years in the making terry gilliam's been trying to make it forever i know even to the point where there's a documentary about how he can't get the thing made I know. And the documentary is so much better than the movie yeah. that we waited so long for i tell you what uh, if there I, if that movie came out and didn't have that history and terry gilliam's name on it i, yeah. I think it would have a one percent on rotten tomatoes <laughs> But because of the and Terry I, Gilliam thing and the history yeah. of it, it ends up at like 68% or something, yeah. which is I, I, bonkers. I'm a Gilliam fan. I really am. But I, I just, am too. The, the last few movies have just been, uh, let's say, underwhelming at best. Yeah. We'll, at we'll, best. we'll say that to be kind. Um, okay. okay. Moving tangent, right along. Tangent finished. Yes. Tangent blocked. Okay. So you cheated by putting television on your list. Here's my cheat. I'm cheating by uh, making my number five a tie because there were six movies I really, really wanted to bring up, and I didn't want to get rid of any of them. Oh, so, so you also uh, have eleven movies in your top ten? Yeah, but yes, but I'm, but it's I didn't not make just a mistake. Me. <laughs> I did it on purpose. Fair. I'm, I'm legitimately cheating. <laughs> it's not just that I can't count. I was illegitimately cheating. That's right. Okay. It's okay. You cheat in so many more ways. Okay. Um, so I'm going to talk about two movies real quick, one of which you already talked about, which is Jordan Peele's Us. And when we talk about movies that stay with us, uh, movies that kind of rise in our estimation as time goes on, this is the movie that I think of. I saw this one early in the year. We actually podcasted about it, I think, back in April. Yeah. And um it is a movie that has continued to stick with me and rise up my rankings as the year goes on. I have, I, instead of forgetting about it, it just rises in my estimation. I like it more and more. And continuing the theme of economic inequality, um, Knives Out, mm-hmm. Atlantics, another one I'll talk about in a minute. Uh, this movie is weird and it's funny and it's while it is kind of a genre picture, uh, it still feels new. Um, it's even sort of hard to do a plot synopsis for us. Uh, basically, a family goes to the beach for a vacation, and then weird doppelgangers of all of and, them and show And they are up, murdered by themselves. <laughs> and then they start killing everybody. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And you've got not one, but two amazing performances by Lupita Nyong'o, 
who, if I had one, like, John, you get to choose one Oscar, uh, it's that one. I want her to win something because she's phenomenal. Yeah. And she's, yeah. she does two roles in the same movie, and she does them both brilliantly. Uh, I'm a huge fan of her. And the, I mean, the I mean thematic- to be fair, Nicolas Cage did that in Face Off. <laughs> So did John Travolta. <laughs> basically, you're right. Basically, the same thing. It's basically the same thing. Uh, <laughs> yes, you know, you know what, you know what? Just go watch Face Off. It's fine. Uh, it's basically the same thing. Now, the um, the thematic stuff here about how someone advances from being a have-not to a have is brilliant, and it's such a pretty movie, and I just like it the more and more I think about it. Um, it's one that I'm going to go back to a lot. Uh, the, I'm not so sure. Like, other... I, I, I just, I'm, I'm not going to de- yeah. derail anything, but I feel no, kind no. of the opposite. The more I've thought about it, the less I've liked it. But I mean, that's not a huge difference. I don't mean that it's, you know, I, I sure. dislike the movie. It's just, it's one of those films that the experience of watching it was completely engrossing. But the more I actually think about it, the more I'm like, yeah, but what about this? And what was that? And what did that mean? So, you know, I mean, I can take all that and swallow it, but sure. I didn't have the experience that the that it aged into a better movie. Yeah, I, I actually I like all of those things. Um, Fair. And 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 if I can just put a plug in, that's going to make you mad. A plug in for us. There are rabbits. There are lots and lots and lots of rabbits. So for a rabbit room podcast, I would be uh, I would be forsaking my duty if I didn't mention the rabbits in us. Okay, comment along. withheld. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, the movie, so the movie that I have tied with us, and it was really because I could I couldn't get away without talking about this movie, uh, is a movie called The Last Black Man in San Francisco. Oh, I haven't uh, seen that yet. So directed by Joe Talbot, it's streaming on Amazon Prime. You can watch it there, and it's a it's kind of a lyrical tale of a young black man named Jimmy trying to save the house in San Francisco that his grandfather built. He's trying to, in a lot of ways, fight gentrification, uh, not of a whole neighborhood, but of this one special house. And at the center of the movie, Jimmy's best friend, Mont, performs a play, a play called The Last Black Man in San Francisco. And uh, this movie is a vibrant, unique take on what community means. It's about what does it mean to be from somewhere? In fact... Uh, I think that if Wendell Berry were from San Francisco instead of Kentucky, this is the kind of movie he would make. That sounds great. I, yep. I got to get around to that one. Yeah, it's it's great. Make time for it. All right, you're up. All right, all right. Back to me. So my number four is we've already talked about it. Knives Out. I'm a huge yes. fan of Ryan Johnson. I me just too. think he's got he's such a fresh voice in his writing yep. and his filmmaking. Um, it's been a long time since we've seen a great whodunit. And, oh, my gosh, just what a cast. How much fun is it? It's just like every, I had a grin on my face from the, the moment the lights went down to the moment they came up. It's just fantastic, wonderfully witty. And, uh, and it manages to be a, a murder story about goodness, which I just loved. <laughs> you know, the, 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 the hinge that everything turns off on is uh, the goodness of a character which is yep. not what usually happens in these films. And, uh, you know, it kept me guessing, you know, the whole the whole time. I, I just love the structure of it and that, like, you know, you, you can't watch a movie like this without constantly trying to figure out who 
who's done what, right? Sure. But the way that it immediately starts upending those expectations is just brilliant, you know? And so about halfway through, I stopped trying to figure anything out. And I'm like, you know what? I'm just on for the, along for the ride. And I'm going to see what happens. Uh, and I was not disappointed. And man, I, I've heard rumors that, that he's working on a, a follow-up to this with Benoit yep. Blanc, the, the Daniel Craig character. <laughs> and I hope that goes well. Uh, I wouldn't yeah. want to try to top this movie because I just it, I think it's just about a perfect film. Uh, I, I, w- I just think everybody should go see it. It's wonderful. And that's Knives Out, my, my number four. Yeah, I'm with you on Knives Out. Um, like I said, I think it was the most fun I had in the theater this year. It's It's also one of those rare movies where everybody that's in it they're all having a blast and you can tell the whole time they're having so much fun. They're just chewing like Daniel Craig. Every time he's on the screen is just chewing the scene. Like, yeah, I don't know. And it's also like a super quotable movie. Like, I feel like it's the kind of thing you could watch over and over again. And then you and your friends will will be quoting it for the next 20 years, you know, stuff like it's a donut inside a donut, you know, that kind of (laughs) stuff. It's just so much fun. And then on top of that, the cast is so remarkable. And into the middle of this great ensemble cast, you've got this, this girl who I have never seen before, to my knowledge, who just knocks it out of the ballpark and holds her own with all of these people. And I can't imagine how intimidating that must have been but man i hope somebody in her life is just telling her you did it because she did yep. yeah that's that's anna dalarmus who i think we're going to see a lot of moving forward she's she's fantastic okay moving along uh so speaking of movies that we'll be hearing about in a few minutes at number four i've got terrence malick's a hidden life Number four. And I know what? I'm gonna be I'm gonna be excommunicated from the rabbit room <laughs> for not making it number one. I get it. I liked it a lot. Okay. Um, I would not call it my favorite Terrence Malick film. I liked it a lot though. Uh, and I, I know you're gonna talk about it, Pete, so I'm not gonna say very much about it. It's Malick at his most Malicky. Um, no. It's the true st- it's the Basically, it's not his most malicky. Oh boy, do I think it is. I'll get there um, in a minute. Yeah, sure. Basically, it's the true story of an Austrian peasant farmer who, in World War II, refuses to fight for the Nazis, uh, even if it means paying the ultimate price. And it's kind of heroism at its most basic. There are no battle scenes in this movie, other than a little bit of stock footage. Our hero speaks very little. He fights by not fighting. In fact... Uh, he fights best by loving those around him well, even the prisoners he's locked up with. Um, so the film does feel like a Malick film. It, I could, if you're familiar with the films of Terrence Malick, you didn't know this one was directed by him. You'd know it instantly. That is a fact. Um, yeah. So that that carries with it again. If you're familiar with Tree of Life or Badlands or D- Days of Heaven or what, whatever um, Thin Red Line, a lot of these. A lot of the conventions of the movie will feel comfortable to you. It's slow. It's very quiet. It's very, very beautiful. Um, if you're unfamiliar with Terrence Malick, you might be a little unnerved by the pacing of the movie. For sure. That's not yeah. a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. Like, revel in it. <laughs> yeah. uh, because this is unique in the film world. It's extremely satisfying. I was just going to say, can you imagine what the experience would be like to watch a hidden life and then to walk out of that theater and watch rise of Skywalker 
like the paces are so polar so opposite that I think it might like give you a, a stroke or something. It's, um, I was I was talking to somebody earlier today about this movie, and she said, um, "I just I can't handle another like Schindler's List," and I just want everybody to understand that that is not what this movie is. Right. Um, there's if you're turned off by kind of violence and um, disturbing images, this movie, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, Pete, but it basically has none of that. Yeah. Um, and I'll let you talk about the theological okay. aspect in a minute. So we, we, we won't go there. But go ahead okay. to your next one. All right. So my next one is, I'm cheating again. Woohoo! Is uh, We're back into TV land, and this is HBO's Chernobyl. Oh, which, I could have put this on mine. Man, it is one of the finest things I've ever seen. Um, I, I easily could have put this at number one in any other year. Uh, the way that it unspools its story... The, uh, the, the writing is just master class. The performances are amazing. Um, everything about it is great. And then on top of that, you're telling a story that somehow we don't know. Like everybody's heard of Chernobyl. Um, you know, I, I grew up in the 80s. I certainly heard of it. We knew there was some kind of nuclear disaster. But um, until this broke, I, and I suspect many others, had no idea that... Uh, the, the, what the scale of that disaster was like it's not it's not being dramatic to say that in this instance like we as humanity we literally broke a piece of the world that we cannot fix and it will remain broken for hundreds if not thousands of years and if that doesn't terrify you there's something wrong with you and and the reality is as it unspools you know throughout the show um, that it could have been a lot worse than that. Like, it, like there's a moment when, <laughs> when they realize, you know what? We might have just broken Europe. <laughs> yep. Like, it's that, it's that epic, the, the scale. For 100,000 for years. Yeah, yeah. Like, you, nobody can live here for 1,000 for years or something. It's, it's crazy. And so the heroism, the small, um, unsung heroism that works itself out in the course of that story is just unimaginable. And I, I yeah. think everybody needs to see it. I would watch it again in a heartbeat. Um, it's just, it's just amazing. It's, it's amazing that it's, 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 it's. I think it's eight episodes long, and there's not a misstep in the whole eight episodes, which just reinforces my belief in, like, you know, there there are people out there that are making things that are so good, and each one of these episodes is I th- is it is it an hour? Or is it an hour and a half? Maybe it's just an hour. But it's almost like every single episode is a film unto itself. And yep. so if somebody can pull off eight back-to-back films uh, that are that are perfect, like why do we still end up with bad movies? Like it doesn't have to be that way, folks. Like there is the talent in the world to prevent us from ever having to see things like the Transformers ever again. And yet they persist, and that just upsets me. So anyway, okay, let me Chernobyl. Yeah, I, I agree with you 100%. But if, if I can offer um, to maybe people out there who are wondering if persisting in the art world is worth it, the guy, uh, I want to use Chernobyl as a kind of love letter to you because Chernobyl, the showrunner, creator, writer, is a guy named Craig Mazin. And I just want to read you Craig Mazin's filmography before Chernobyl. Okay. The Huntsman, Winter's War. These are movie, movies he's written. 
<laughs> the Hangover 3. Oh, my gosh. Identity Thief, starring Jason Bateman. Uh, the Hangover 2. Superhero <laughs> Movie. Scary Movie 4. Scary Movie 3. And then a couple of things I've never heard of. How is this so, a thing? So if you're think if you're out there thinking like I'm trudging through my art, well, eventually you can break through with something like Chernobyl. That's amazing. And this is a guy. Yeah, this is a guy that's now winning all of the awards, <laughs> all of the Golden Globes, all the Emmys. He's all of a sudden a list because he persisted in his career and he made this beautiful, beautiful thing. So plus one for Chernobyl, even though it's not a movie. Man, God bless that guy. I think. Yeah, right. <laughs> I think like yeah. he gave us all yeah. that cr- garbage, man. But yeah, I think thank right. God for Chernobyl. That's fascinating. And uh, and just one more quick plug for Chernobyl. All of the things that you think are going to happen in the way that you think they're going to happen because you're familiar with the language of film and television, he doesn't do them that way. He yeah. does. There, there's like a major courtroom kind of scene at the end that doesn't play anything like a normal courtroom scene that you're used to. And I say that yeah. to commend him because it's completely compelling, even if it's a little counterintuitive. So yeah. fi- find it and watch it. It's on yeah, I'll also say that there is, there is, I think, 90 seconds in one of the episodes that's filmed in real time, which is one of yeah. the most yeah. T- yeah. terrifying 90 yep. seconds I've ever yep. experienced. Yep. And it's not because somebody's getting killed. It's not because there's explosions going on. It's because they've fed you enough understanding of mm-hmm. of the nature of the problem that yep. when this 90 seconds comes to pass, you are genuinely horrified um, yep. by something as simple as a person walking across a rooftop. With a and, shot. Uh, yep. And it's absolutely brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. All right. You're up. Okay. Uh, moving along, we are on number three. So number three is one that you've already mentioned, which is Martin Scorsese's The Irishman, also known as I Heard You Paint Houses. So with The Irishman, you've got maybe our greatest living director working alongside three of maybe our greatest living actors making the movie that all of them have been leading up to this whole time. This is the film that Scorsese, De Niro, Pacino, and Pesci were born to make it's a movie about the mob and jimmy hoffa and shooting people and all of that to be sure but it's really a movie about figuring out what we're living for what is worth living for and i just i don't want to like spend a ton of time on this movie uh just go watch it but i just want to give you a couple of scenes from the last part of the movie that to me um are beautiful in their simplicity and perfection. And I'm going to, there's probably a little bit of spoiler here, but it's okay. By the time you get to the end of the movie, you'll have forgotten what I was talking about anyway, because it's three hours long. And the first one is when Robert De Niro's character late, late, late in life has a conversation with his daughter about um, his daughter to have been silent almost the entire movie about basically the terrible job he, he did as a father. And at that moment, the light bulb doesn't quite go on, but it kind of does halfway. And in fact, the next thing he does, the next scene is him picking out a coffin for himself. Um, the next scene, and this is one of those indelible scenes for me that probably will live on for years and years and years. And it's De Niro and Pesci's character in the prison cafeteria 
sharing one last communion, uh, mm. a little bit of bread and a little bit of wine mm-hmm. together as they talk about what their lives have meant. And then so good. This so movie good. is so full of good <laughs> so scenes. Good. Like there's so just that, that I feel such a like this is what I think we've talked about this before. Like one of my frustrations with the direction of modern cinema and its fast pace and its quick cuts mm-hmm. is that we've lost the art of scene building, yes. you know, in which you can put two actors in a room and barely move the camera, barely make yeah. cuts and just see a whole drama unfold. And this movie is a masterclass in, in seeing how that works. Yeah. And so the next one comes just a little bit later and De Niro is kind of in the nursing home and the priest is praying with him as he's looking through pictures of his daughters at young ages. And the prayer that he's repeating is God, we ask you to let us see yourselves to see ourselves as you see us Mm. as he's looking at his daughters. And I want to cry just thinking about it. Yeah, man, it's so good. And then I don't even care. Like, again, you're going to forget this by the time you you make it all the way through the movie. But the very, very end, as De Niro is in his nursing home room um, all by himself and the priest is leaving. And he says, Father, don't shut the door all the way. Just leave it open a little bit. Yeah. And, (laughs) uh, yeah, and, and then we're left with Scorsese and how he feels about his faith and what De Niro's character has been living for his whole life, asking the father to just leave it open a little bit. Yeah, it's man. beautiful. So good. It's, I want so Can I change my list? Can I put it at number one? Is that possible? I know. Now I'm regretting putting mine at number five or six or whatever it <laughs> I just was. Wanna watch, I just want to watch The Irishman again. It's so good. And I uh, so appreciated I, like seeing the kind of um, growth. The, the, the growth that I'm talking about from, from in Scorsese, I think, is from the Scorsese of Goodfellas that really yeah. delighted and reveled into, you know, murder and punching and stabbing yeah. and shooting and all this. And then you get to the Irishman here at the end of his life and all that stuff is still there, but it's totally stripped of its glorification. It's Absolutely. totally stripped of its, uh, like that is filmed in a completely different way. It's almost like an afterthought and it's not, it's not cool. It's quick. And it's, you know, it's just, it's, it's mundane in a way that makes it that much more terrible, you know? And I just so appreciated that because I was going into this thinking, this is going to be another Goodfellas, and I don't know if I'm up for that. Yeah. Um, and I've just loved that it wasn't that movie. Yep, totally. And in fact, it, it feels like a reflection on those movies. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It feels like th- this is what those movies have been building up to. Yeah, for real. Okay, okay. so... Number two, Little Women. So confession, I've never read Little Women. I I have a vague memory of having seen the Winona Ryder version 20 years ago or something, but remembered absolutely nothing about it. Remembered nothing about it. Um, But, you know, I know its reputation, and I know the esteem uh, with which my wife, uh, the, the esteem that my wife has for the book. And so... I love Saoirse Ronan. I will watch her do just about anything. Totally. Uh, and I mainly went to see it because I trusted in the reputation of my wife or of, of classic literature and in the the love my wife has for the movie. And then yeah. just wanting to go see what Saoirse Ronan's doing. And it was 
just beginning to end a revelation for me. It was so good. I had no idea it was going to be about a writer. So even from the first scene, I'm like, oh, man, I like this girl, you know? And it never went downfield from there. But what really, you know, when the movie was over, I leaned over to Jennifer and I just said, is the book structured like that or like in this nonlinear way? And she said, oh, no, the book is, is very linear. And immediately I was like, well, Greta Gerdwig is a genius because yeah. this structure is something else. Like the way that the story is told is just phenomenal. And like I can see immediately where if you told this story in a linear fashion, you've immediately got a lesser movie. Um, so kudos for her for figuring that thing out. And kudos for her for figuring out a way to have the ending both ways. You know, I know all the conversations about yep. Joe's character and, you know, her her uh, her arguments with her publisher and, mm-hmm. and the way the book actually ends versus what she wanted it and all that. And so for Greta Gerwig to have found a way to have that both ways, yes. uh, it was just wonderful. And then on top of that, like, I feel like so often when you get this sort of uh, feminist sort of story about uh, women's liberation, and if that's even the right term for it, somebody will probably yell at me because it's not, but uh, about, you know, just women living fully, you know, uh, full lives, full of their own agency and being able to chase whatever dream they have so often when you get those kind of stories it feels like they're kind of throwing uh the another woman who wants to be married and have children under the bus like they're saying that that's a lesser choice and what i love about this movie is that like its tagline is is own your own story and so that's not just about joe like that's about amy it's about meg it's about like man the the world is full of valid choices and like they can all be great choices and it, one isn't valued above another and that they should all be available and uh i mean i just i just thought it was so beautiful the performances were so fantastic um the, it's a beautiful movie to watch the, i love the way the lighting shifts between you know the 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 book or the past and the and the and the the present yep. I, yeah I, I don't know what else i can say about it i just i just the moment I walked out of the movie, I wanted to see it again. I haven't seen it again yet, yep. but I can't wait. And uh, men need to go see it. Uh, yes. Everybody needs to go see it. Take, take your sons to see it. Um, yes. There's no reason why this is a movie that should be only seen by women. Um, totally. And I don't, I don't, I don't, I'm tired of living in a world where people assume that that's the case. Because that's not right. Um, so, yeah. Kudos to Louisa May Alcott and to Greta Gerwig. Um, I love the story. It makes me want to go read the book, and uh, yeah. it's one of my, it's it's my second favorite movie of the year. And uh, if I'm picking a best picture this year at the Oscars, this is my this is my vote because yeah. my number one poop movie definitely isn't going to win an Oscar, but I think <laughs> this is the best movie of the year. Yeah, well, I, I know what your number one movie is, but um, I I loved Little Women as well. I did take my sons, I took my sons and my daughter, and I had a similar experience. I, uh, it, what's interesting to me is if you put this movie up against a film like 1917, and I know I'm picking on it a lot because I just recently saw it. In 1917, you're always keenly aware of the artifice. You're always aware of the craft that's going into it. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I love about Little Women, what I love about it, is Greta Gerwig as a director. I don't want to say gets out of the way because that, that's not really fair to her, but you are so drawn into the story that the craft of it is irrelevant. It's 
brilliant and it's yeah. perfect. You're no longer but, watching a movie at some point. You're just yes. observing these characters' lives. Yes. And it's also, um, in particular, the performances are great, but in, in particular, Florence Pugh as Amy has this way of, when the t- for instance, when the time shifts, you yeah. always know exactly where you are. Just by how just she carries by, herself. Just by the, yeah, by the look on her face. And none of the, the other ones are, are great. They're all really good. Uh, but she has something special. And um, she's she's an, another one of those actors that's kind of up and coming. She was also in Midsummer this year, which was really good. And um, yeah, she's she's really special in this movie. So yeah, highest praise for Little Women. I liked it a lot. All right. My number two is Parasite uh, by Bong Joon-ho. I have not seen this one. Yes. Uh, so it will win the uh, foreign language Oscar. I can, if I were a betting man, I'd bet the house on it. And it should be a Best Picture nominee um, because the craftsmanship, it should be a Best Director nominee as well. The craftsmanship is exquisite. And Parasite is kind of the movie that Joker wanted to be uh, an exploration of class and economic status. Uh, what we'll do to get up the ladder, what we'll do to stay there, and then what it takes to bring the whole thing down. Um, it's the story of a family of con men and women who feel like they deserve more. They're smarter than everyone. They've struggled long enough. They're tired of living their lives in a basement apartment, folding pizza boxes for a living. They deserve more. And so the son cons his way into a position as a tutor for a rich family and then his sister, mother, and father join the con. And just when it looks like they've made it, something so bizarre happens that the whole movie is turned on its head. Uh, Bong doesn't make typical movies. Uh, Snowpiercer, Okia, now Parasite. Uh, these are movies that have something to say in an unconventional way. And this movie is phenomenal. And if I were to say go see a movie this year, like to everybody, I would say, please go see Parasite. Really? Um, huh. Uh, and literally any other year, and this is a runaway num- runaway number one for me. Wow. Okay. There's just one movie that I liked a little bit more. Oh, my gosh. I just up, realized Pete. what's about to happen, and I'm so upset about it. You're up, Pete. Uh, <laughs> so my number one, if you haven't already figured this out, is Terrence Malick's A Hidden Life. Um, I'm a huge Malick fan, have been for decades. Um, And I would argue that this is his um, best movie. And the reason I say that is I feel like he's honed his particular form, uh, which, uh, you know, he was making much more linear and understandable movies way back with like Days of Heaven. Uh, But he hadn't, I don't think he had fully become Terrence Malick at that point. And then, you know, Din Red Line, I love. I love Tree of Life, even though I hate the third act of it. Uh, and then you have things like To the Wonder, which, you know, is a beautiful movie about what exactly, you know? And I feel like this one is where it all comes together. Like, it's a, it's a narrative, it's a linear narrative, essentially. Um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a more traditional narrative that, that is accessible to people in a way that Tree of Life might not be. Uh, and yet he's got all of his powers of poetry and visual um, beauty at work, uh, working for a very clear common goal, I think. And uh, I, I just, 
I, I, I couldn't have loved it more. I just I adored it from its opening scene to its last. But what really threw it over the top for me was that, uh, okay, so if we go, this, this film is in conversation, I think, with Martin Scorsese's Silence. And I've read somewhere that even that, that Terrence Malick had written Scorsese a letter after he watched Silence with uh, some thoughts uh, about, and maybe some different conclusions that maybe gave rise to his wanting to make this film. I don't know. But they both deal with people who are living in a time of persecution and who are faced with unimaginable choices um, about their faith. Uh, and the films come to very different conclusions. In 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 silence, the kind of thing that they're wrestling with is, uh, or the conclusion that silence, I think, comes to is that the suffering and the here and now ultimately becomes the most important thing. Like if we can alleviate suffering, then we should, uh, no matter what. And I'm not saying that that's a wrong conclusion. Um, it's certainly an understandable conclusion in the context of that story. And I, it's one of my favorite movies. It's one of my favorite books. Everybody should read it. But it's yeah. it's not quite theologically where I want it to be because it, what it what it doesn't do is it doesn't acknowledge that uh, uh, in the context of suffering we have a new creation to look forward to. We have resurrection to look forward to. Yeah. Uh, and if uh, if we are true Christians, then we understand that the Christian hope has always been uh, that we will be resurrected, that we will see God in our flesh, that the world will be recreated and set right. And so when um, the character in silence makes the choice that the most important thing for him to do is recant in order to yeah. stop the suffering that's going on, it's like he's he's young, he's so young and inexperienced in his faith that he has not understood that there's a long game. So... A Hidden Life deals with the same sort of choices in World War II, and it comes to completely different conclusions. And so I watched the movie, and the whole time I've got this kind of tension in myself of knowing that this guy, spoilers, is going to be executed for his beliefs. And I'm, I, I'm anxious to know what they're going to do with that information and how that story is going to resolve. Yeah. And uh, so the final moments of the film when his wife is reckoning with what's just happened, you know, she says something to the effect of, you know, one day we will understand what this has all been for. <laughs> we will plant orchards. We will sow fields. And I will see you there in the mountains. And it's like that is what knocks this, uh, tips it over into like a true Orthodox Christian film for me, because it's a realization that um, we've got a hope that's much deeper than what happens to our bodies here and now today. You know, we've got a promise that we're looking forward to, and that has got to, in some sense, inform the way that we deal with our suffering. And I think Franz in the film uh, grew to understand that. So anyway, that's the theological like satisfaction that I got out of that film, is I feel like it provides a, a theodicy that I can really chew on and get behind. Yeah. And it's so rare to see a faith-based, I put that in quotation marks because I hate the term, and I yeah. don't really consider this faith-based, but it's so rare to see uh, a movie wrestle with religious and faith-based matters and and land so thor thoroughly where uh, I think it should land. I mean, I wanted to cheer when it was over. I was in tears. I wanted to see it yeah. again immediately. It was just a beautiful, beautiful film. And in particular, uh, there's one 
there's a scene in it. Uh, there's multiple scenes that I could go on about, but like one of the best in it for me is there, there's a scene with between Franz and a painter, and a painter is in a church and he's painting the, the kind of like frescoes and stuff on the church interior, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. he talks about how like uh, I paint the, the these comfortable pictures that allow people to admire Christ as this mm-hmm. this wonderful thing that has happened and has come into the world. And he says that because I haven't suffered, I cannot paint a true Christ. Because a true mm-hmm. Christ is like a, something that is ugly and and uh, tortured and, and 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 has been been through ultimate suffering. And it, you know that that conversation ends with him saying that perhaps one day I will be brave enough to paint a true Christ. And so the rest of the movie essentially is Franz taking that to heart. Mm-hmm and Franz painting a true Christ with his own life. Because it's making the distinction between being an admirer of Christ and being a follower. And uh, I think, it was it uh, was it Bonhoeffer that said, when, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Franz, I think, in the movie heard that call and, and, and followed Christ right to the end and bore his cross in a way that we are all thankfully not called to usually. So anyway, it's a beautiful, beautiful film. The other huge metaphor that I took away from it that I will never forget is uh, they go to a church and you hear a homily in the background. Mm -hmm. And the preacher or the priest is talking about how uh, when when the hammer strikes the anvil, Mm. that the anvil also is shaping the thing that's being created. And though though the anvil never strikes back, the hammer eventually breaks. Right. And so like this wonderful image of, you know, steadfastness, you know, mm-hmm. and being, uh, it's a pacifism and a steadfastness, like we don't have to strike back. And even if it seems like we're not doing any good at all, we are still shaping something, if that makes sense. It's not only the hammer that strikes yeah. that shapes the work, it's the anvil. Anyway, it's just a beautiful metaphor. And you'll see, if you watch it again, you'll see there are, repeated kind of like shots of a blacksmith and an anvil and so franz mm-hmm. is this anvil mm-hmm. for the rest of the movie who's constantly being beaten and is not striking back you know and his his real internal struggle is with whether or not any of it matters like people over and over say to him uh, do you think that you, this is going to change the world do you think anybody will ever even hear about this you know and that's a real struggle uh and the the, the lesson of the anvil is that even in our quietude we are shaping something even if we can't understand what it is. Oh, I could just go on and on. I love the movie yeah. desperately. Um, <laughs> it, it does for me what no other Malick movie has ever done, and that it, uh, I feel like it's, I can, I almost, I, I understand almost all of it. Like every other mm-hmm. one of his movies, I feel like he is a little too self indulgent and goes off in some weird direction that just leaves me scratching my head. Now I can, I can, you know, I can argue that things mean this, this means that, but I felt like in this one, what he's done is really clearly communicate. Um, But at the same time, he's not just telling us what to think, because one of the beauties about this movie is that it's about the moments between moments. There are very few opportunities in this movie for us to see a conversation between two characters. Normally, what we see is the moment after a conversation or before a conversation. And so his master... Uh, mastery of this uh, form is that by showing us the moments that bookend the actual story, that we, the viewer, are able to intuit what's going on 
And that's a kind of poetry that you don't encounter very often. Anyway, so it's my favorite movie of the year. And I'm tempted to say it is certainly in my top fav- five favorite movies of all time. Uh, it's certainly my favorite movie of the decade. Uh, it's just, it's all there. It does everything for me. And I, I love it. Uh, yeah, I, I love it a lot, too. And if I can, two quick plugs. One is, uh, I think maybe our next podcast, we'll, we'll talk about our favorite movies of the decade. Um, so be on the lookout for that here sometime soon. So you'll probably hear more about Hidden Life then. But the other plug that I want to put in real quick is, if at all possible, go see this movie in the theater. Yes. I talked earlier about uh, watching They Shall Not Grow Old on my laptop, and that's fine. This is a movie, not not just because of the big screen and all the majestic views, although the, that you should do that for those reasons, but also because this movie is best watched, I think, in the with the communal experience of the other people around you in the theater who are having the same sense of awe at what's going on as you are. The same quiet that's coming from the screen that's coming from the people in the room that you're all sharing together is ideal for a theater going experience. So please hurry and get to the theater before it leaves. Yeah. It's a, it's a meditative movie, which uh, if you are in your living room with the ability to hit pause and go throw some popcorn in the microwave or to take a phone call, all of that is broken. Uh, Absolutely. If you do have to watch it at home, I say, put it on the TV, turn off the lights and yep. turn off your phone and do not yep. pause the movie. Watch it from beginning to end and let it cast its spell. Otherwise, you're not uh, allowing the film to do its work. Yeah, I'm 100% with you, Pete. So that's your number one, and here's mine. And I, Okay, before I, before I talk about this movie, I just want to say real quick that you can go back and listen to a podcast that Pete and I did about this movie from a couple of months ago if you want to get the whole... Uh, conversation between me and Pete. That's all there. So that way we don't have to talk about it for an hour right now because we've already done that. This is a movie that for me, from the moment I saw it, I said this is going to be my favorite movie of the year. And, oh my gosh. Uh, nothing has nothing has dissuaded me from that opinion. I absolutely love it. And so the year is 1969. Hippies are on their way out. The era of peace and love is coming to an end. And one event that year would put the nail in the coffin. And that's when the Manson family murdered actress Sharon Tate, J. Sebring, Abby Folger, who was the heir to the Folger's Coffee Fortune, and um, Wojciech Frykowski. And the age of peace and love and harmony was over. But what if it didn't happen that way? So in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Quentin Tarantino employs two men, actor Rick Dalton, his stunt double Cliff Booth, to save the day. But this movie is so much more than some kind of retribution flick. It's about what it means to be someone, what it means to have friends, and ultimately what it means to acknowledge that your life meant something even if it wasn't what you thought it would be. And so... Rick, frustrated in the way his career as a leading man has fizzled, ultimately reduced to spaghetti westerns and Italian crime flicks, comes home and through no planning or guile saves the life of Sharon Tate. Now in Priscilla Page's uh, stellar review of the film over on Birth Movies Death, which I recommend you go find and read, she quotes Tarkovsky. Cinema lives by its capacity to resurrect the same event on the screen time after time. 
Yes, Sharon Tate was murdered by the Manson family, but Rick, Cliff, and Clinton were able in some way to give meaning to their own lives by resurrecting her for us time after time. And I think it's brilliant. And by the way, get ready for when it wins Best Picture at the Oscars this year. Uh, because and of Hollywood narcissism. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm not, not going to go off I on this movie again. The yeah. movie you just described is a movie I would love to see. That is not the movie that this is. Uh, and yeah. All right. I'm glad you enjoyed it. it's funny it's funny because like generally speaking um like we agree on at least for the most part on on movies like you know we might have some small disagreements about some things but this movie in particular for whatever reason um is like a it's a dividing line and I, I don't, I don't know what it is. I, I, I can't really quantify what the what the difference is. We both sat down, and watched the same movie. So one day, oh, man. I think, yeah, I don't know. Ten years just, from now, it, we look it, back on this it, conversation. I'm getting like I'm just I'm sitting here right now, rethinking about the movie and getting upset all over again at how distasteful the whole thing was. I just man, and and combine that with the fact that it's made up of some of the best scenes ever. I love it. There's so many things about the movie that I love, but it's complete vacuousness. I oh, just, man. I, see, I, just, I just think it's the complete opposite of that. I think it's no. uh, new, and it's fresh, and it's trying to do a thing that it does. And I, I, um, this is, this is the, I feel like this is the same conversation as Rebecca Reynolds trying to convince me oh, that, no, that's that Star Wars is a high okay, piece first of art of, that involves first like, of all, mythological elements. Ugh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. First of all, we're going to cut Rebecca. this part from the. Yeah, we're going to cut this from the podcast because we can't, couldn't possibly air it. Secondly, I believe because I can say this because we're going to cut it that she's just playing with us. I think so too. Like, and I think you're I just really playing with think me. She, I'm definitely not. I'm pretty. I'm like 98 percent sure that she's just trolling and she's laughing her yeah, I don't head know. off at trying to sell us on the fact that that movie has all of these incredible mythological touchstones. Yeah. Okay, anyway, uh, let's see. How can I get back into that? Um, I think that's pretty much it. Okay, so anyway, if you want to – go ahead. I was just going to say I'm glad you enjoyed it. You definitely saw a different movie in that theater (laughs) than I did. And, uh, in fact, you may hear a little bit more about that movie from me here in a minute. Yeah, that doesn't doesn't surprise me. Um, Yeah, so that's our top tens of the year. And – like I said at the beginning, it's a great year for movies. You can follow me on Letterboxd. Uh, my username is JBBaby76, and you can see my entire list, all 56 movies, uh, in kind of the order that I that I liked them. So you can check that out there. One day maybe we'll convince Pete to jump on there as well, but for now you can follow me and, uh, and take a look. Before we leave, we want to spend just a moment, a quick moment, giving you uh, perhaps our hall of shame for the year. We kind of gave you the, we gave you the good, the great movies. Now we're going to give you the ones that we were sorely disappointed in. Um, and Pete, I'll let you go first. Okay. Well, for me, this is primarily an issue of a film that had everything set up for it that could have just knocked it out of the park and completely failed to deliver on whatever promise it had. And so my list of these movies is Frozen 2. I really liked the first Frozen movie, despite some complaints that, if you know me, you've probably heard. And Frozen 2, I just thought, was a dreadful script full of dreadful songs. And 
Like, I defy anybody to tell me what happened in that movie. Uh, Star Wars, Rise of Skywalker, I have, like, while I enjoyed parts of it as a, as a story, it's, it's nonsensical and doesn't function at all. It, part two, uh, I really enjoyed the first It, and the second one was just, except for Bill Hader's performance, for the most part, it would, the, the second one was just a train wreck. And oh my gosh, I love the X-Men, but Dark Phoenix is an abomination of a movie. And it's even more insulting to me because the Dark Phoenix saga is one of my favorite comic book um, stories yeah. in mine, comic book history. Too. And why yeah. nobody seems to be able to make this into the amazing movie that it should be is just baffling yeah. to me. Uh, Glass. Uh you know, I love uh, what, was, uh, what was the first one? Unbreakable. I loved Unbreakable. Unbreakable. And I, 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 for the most part, I loved the one with uh, what was the second one? Uh, Split. Split. For the most part, I loved Split. It was at least fun. Yeah, me too. But Glass, man, not good at all. Sorry, man. Okay, Lego Movie Two. Somebody, please stop. Like Lego Movie <laughs> One worked, and I enjoyed it, but I, I expected it to be awful. Lego Movie 2, I watched because I thought maybe it'll have some of that magic that Lego 1 had, and it was just the most cacophonous, irritating two hours that I maybe have ever seen in my life, and it shouldn't exist. Alita Battle Angel. Again, great source material and just a terrible movie. Uh, Hellboy? Oh my goodness. Stop ruining things. Okay, Hellboy 1 and 2 by Guillermo del Toro are really good movies. This new thing is so bad. Stay away from it. Don't even be tempted. Aladdin, what is going on? I, to be fair, I only saw the first 15 minutes of this movie, but it was so bad that you couldn't pay me to watch the rest of it. Uh, Godzilla, King of Monsters. Just what are we even doing with our money in this country? Uh, Rocket Man. Uh, I give it props for being a better movie than Bohemian Rhapsody. but And I give it props for being bold and trying to do some really bold things. But uh, just doesn't work. I'm sorry. It just, oh, it was painful. And then finally, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. <laughs> I'm sorry. I just, <laughs> I, I, I kind of saw that so, coming. I was so let down by it. Like, I, I, I had such high hopes for it because I I usually really respect Tarantino's work. But this one, it just, it, it got to the end. And when it had nothing better to say, I just wanted to throw something at the screen. I was so angry. And the violence at the end, so over the top, so unnecessary, Sari, so glorified. Um, yeah, it's just, it's, it's one of the most distasteful movies I've seen in a long time, despite the fact that it's got some amazing writing in it, some amazing scenes, and it's got references, some of my favorite movies of all time. There's so much about it that I love, but it's the emptiness at the heart of it. Uh, I just, I just can't, I'm not, I'm not here for that. And I wanted to see something in it. And the little bit that it tries to pull out is I just don't see it like John does. I'm sorry. So that's my wall of shame. So what I'm learning from, from your, your hall of shame picks there, Pete, is not that you don't have time to go to the movie. (laughs) It's that you are really, really, really bad at choosing which movies you see, because that list that you gave, you, you just rattled off like nine movies or something that you knew better than to go see. (laughs) I think I saw two of them. Yeah. Well, I'm here doing it for you. So you don't have to, I I didn't see almost any of those. You said, pick your hall of shame movies. And I was like, I didn't really see very many bad movies this year. I will say I'll second your opinion on It Chapter 2, which is I, a I, I, terrible, to terrible disappointment. To be fair, I am, I am, 
Well, I was just going to say, to be fair, like I am drawn like a moth to the flame to things that, that should be good, but I know won't be. Sure, and, uh, I get it. Yeah, I just and and in my also into my defense, like I get a lot of pleasure out of bad movies, even these, and they are real learning experiences as a playwright sure. and, a, and an author. Sure. Like, uh, do not be ashamed to go watch bad things because when you spend two hours sitting there analyzing how something could have been fixed, you're you're becoming a better writer yourself. And so, you know, it's not time lost, but it's just time disappointed. You know, like I just, I really wanted it to be good and I root for these things. And then when they can't deliver, I just think, how does this get out of the script phase? Like stories are not that hard to fix, you know? (laughs) So anyway, okay, I'm done. Off my high horse. Go ahead. Yeah. All all that to say, maybe next year, trade some of those experiences (laughs) for some of the great films that are out go instead of going to see lego movie two or whatever which is like a 19 on metacritic maybe go to the art house film and see parasite next year that's all i'm saying Um, but the the art house theater is so much farther away (laughs) (laughs) that's listen one thing i have going in my favor and this is true is that in knoxville the art house theater is literally the closest one to my house that so would change my life. I go there all the time, especially since I have Regal Unlimited now and I can go see as many movies as I want. Um, I spend a lot of time at the Downtown West Theater in Knoxville, Tennessee. Highly recommended. Check it out. All right, Pete. I think we've gotten to the end of our time. Uh, it's been a great episode. It's been a great Wait, you only had movies. one on your list of shame? Uh, okay, so I only had one on my list of shame because... I mean, I could I could say that I, I really didn't like Godzilla, which is true. I, I really didn't like it, but I don't really care. Yeah. I wasn't really disappointed terribly. I was really terribly disappointed by It Chapter 2 because I loved the novel, and I loved, loved, loved the first movie. It got so many things right, yeah. and this movie just got all of them wrong. Yeah. And especially, like, the bad CGI and the ending, which is ridiculous. And, like, I... I could go on about how, how much I didn't like yeah. it. So it, it for me occupies like a, a special level yeah. all by itself of, of shame that it, it just, it sort of ruined a thing that could have been like, we could yeah. have had a two part it thing that could have been really special and we, we don't have it now. Yeah. I, let me defend my choice of Godzilla real quick. The reason that I put it on the <laughs> hall of shame rather than just not caring is because it went out of its way to like put in some like, Christian sort of theological sure. weird overtones that it apparently thought was cool and was yep. just idiotic. And I yep. saw people out there, like I literally saw a couple of people who I generally respect say, this is one of the great Christian movies of the year. And I'm just no. like, what no, no. are you saying? No. Stop. No. Stop. No. 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 Yeah. No. So anyway. Nope. Yep. I'm done. I've said okay. I'm well, done like four times in this episode. Yeah, so I'm fine. really done it's now. Fine. <laughs> yeah, it's fine. We're all done. Thanks so much for listening uh, to Fixed in Post. We'll be coming at you soon with another episode. Hopefully, uh, we'll be talking about our favorite movies of the decade. Uh, for me, there's a clear number one. I'll give you that. And it's not a hidden life. And um, But I do know what it is. So be on the lookout for that. It'll be coming soon. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you next time. That's a wrap on this episode of Fixed in Post, the Rabbit Room podcast about movies. Thanks to Pete Peterson and Andrew Osinga for our theme music. 